0: Welcome to The Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus. as every other week we walk through a few passages in light of the gospel before looking at a, but what about part of the Bible that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. My friends, it is good to see you on this fine Zoom platform where we now record these. Uh, how how are things, Chris? Let's start with you. What's what's been going on since we saw you last? Ah, uh,
1: doing well. Uh, it's been a great fall. Just telling my family today, the fall in Minnesota has been nice this year. It's not you know thirty one or something in flurries too early. So we've been been enjoying that. Went to the Minnesota Zoo this morning, so I ran right from there to here and. Um, we had been trying to take my parents there for a couple of months. They have a new feature there called a treetop trail. So that it's kind of elevated walkway. So we went to that and saw a dolphin show, which uh is kind of unique because they're from Chicago, these dolphins, they're just here because their home is getting fixed in Chicago apparently, which I assume is a shed aquarium. I don't know for sure. But um we we uh yeah watched a dolphin show, which um always makes my wife a bit emotional. We talked a bit about that. Um, it's uh, and I I actually kind of agree with her. I don't weep uh, as much as maybe she does. But <laughs> during during dolphin shows. Oh, by the way, I mean, dolphin shows that include human beings swimming with them. I don't know if you guys have ever seen something like that, in, like in person, but it's where there's music and people are standing on the, the noses of dolphins and, you know, flipping swimming with them. Flipping around. Stuff, yeah. anyway. Anyway, that's what, that's what I'm talking about.
0: And, um, yeah, and, so and we, this this episode today is sponsored by the Minnesota Zoo, I'm assuming. Minnesota I <laughs> mean, just the, the number of things I've learned already. Did they give oh, oh, you a card? Of, I like don't know. if you
2: mentioned
1: <laughs> or that the treetop tree trail. I think they actually have sponsors, the all these things now at the zoo themselves. Uh, the Shed Aquarium. I'm just name dropping everything here, but um but no, we impressed. we um we we kind of like that stuff. And I think I think there's some kind of lion and lamb uh, themes there as we think about you know, bringing grace into that a little bit, just like this guy swimming with these dolphins. they even said that, like, you shouldn't try to do this unless you have like five years of rapport with these animals, you know, it's just, it's not natural. And yet they're just loving each other and swimming so close together. And like, there's trust. And I think it's just kind of a glimpse into, I think, I don't know, um, just the, the wall tearing down nature, I think, you know, of the gospel that we're not supposed to be able to maybe exist that close with our creator, but we can now, you know, so maybe that's why it's emotional. I know Davis, you and I have talked a bit about that, how just that where there's emotion, you know, we've uh, that, that sometimes Jesus is there. What makes you cry or what makes you emotional, that kind of thing. And so that's why we thought about it, but. Anyway. yeah
0: and and Protestants historically we're not we're not too good at that emotional life yeah, and for sure uh, I think culture has done a good corrective of like hey this stuff kind of matters uh, not all of it's true yeah. all the time but right. God, right. yeah God might be behind some of those tears at a dolphin show sponsored by the <laughs> Minnesota Zoo <laughs> <laughs> yeah how about you guys how you been Laura how are you doing
2: um yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm probably the busiest I've ever been in my life. Uh just with general uh parent and work and life things. Um I was just bemoaning to my husband last night about how like much information is thrown at us from the kids' schools and sports and I feel like I'm getting like 10 emails a day. I think I'm on like four or five apps um that I'm constantly getting you know, buzzed by I'm on text threads and there's robo calls and then there's communication folders. And it just like, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed with all of it right now. Um, it just, Can I tell it just, you that
0: I, I feel overwhelmed just he- hearing about these, <laughs> like, I don't even, <laughs> I'm tired.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's intense. I mean, and I don't, you know, if you don't know me, I have two teenagers and a elementary age son. So, it just we're busy you know we have football and karate and marching band and you know just life and then having to and like are, the, be a are human. the kids in
0: sports too or is that
2: uh no it's just you're... me yeah, yeah okay. i'm actually living out my dreams right now as an adult um <laughs> karate super <football>. weird <laughs> the tallest one on the marching band field uh i really kick their butts in karate though so <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that Seinfeld episode where Kramer is fighting children in karate. We're all the same belt, Jerry. They're nine. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Laura. You were saying, yeah. it. love it. No, love
2: it. back to my really serious discussion here, Davis. Jeez. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. So it just is, it's just the season of life. And I just kind of like feel like I'm holding on for dear life. Cause I feel like we're going into the busy season. So I don't know mm. what that means for my future. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah I mean it's it's just a stage of life and I'm loving it like I looked at my husband the last time we were watching my daughter in marching band and just been like man like this is so cool that our kids just grow up and do things and and we get to just watch them you know be awesome in front of our eyes so definitely a blessing but definitely overwhelming <laughs>
0: Both of those are 100% true at the same time. (laughs) What
2: about you, Davis?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think we, we, speaking on the overwhelmed lane, uh, we recently got a new roof, which had been a year and change in coming. Uh, And so I was really excited about that. But then in the process, they took down our gutters and did not replace them in time, uh, to at least when I heard that they were coming back. And then we got monsoon... Season, I guess, in the Twin Cities. And <laughs> I mean, just biblical proportions of rain that uh, when you don't have gutters, uh, you learn why you have gutters when water starts to come in places that it shouldn't. And so I very quickly just moved to our last house, we had water in the basement and the, the feeling is almost indescribable of just how powerless and how much water becomes this enemy and that you can never defeat. Um, and so, yeah, I was actually talking to uh, Pastor Cor here. He's the lead pastor at, at Hope Downtown and um, was just complaining to him, uh, as you do to friends, I think <laughs> your real <laughs> friends are the ones you can complain in front of maybe. Uh, and he just made an offhand comment that I don't even think, if you asked him that, that he made that he'd remember. But he just said, uh, in response to my being like, "Oh, I don't. I wish I hadn't like worked with somebody I knew, you know, so then I could get more money back based on this blunder." And and he like finished my sentence of like, "You you wish you had worked with somebody you knew so you could act less." christian around them right like or, or something along those lines and uh i i love those instances where sometimes you know somebody makes an offhanded comment and it's almost like the the missile that gets supernaturally guided into the heart of the death star and then just like from the inside <laughs> blows it up because <laughs> that comment uh it stayed with me in like the best right. way i feel like the spirit just was like oh that was for you it just guided it all the way down and i was like oh yeah i'm really getting hell bent uh, yeah fixing this tiny petty problem and acting like this house is even <laughs> like mine and this money's all mine. And yeah, I was just reminded of like, this, this is just stuff and it's petty and it's not yeah. going to go with me into the grave. And that sounds so, like Cor- kind of a,
1: kind of a, you are the man comment you know, Nathan, uh, Nathan to Samuel <laughs> yeah. a little bit or Nathan to David, <laughs> yeah. um, your little story. And then core comes in and says, you're the man. Uh, kind of yeah. kind of uh,
0: and not in the not in the good way the biblical way you're the in man. the biblical like, way like oh. you're you're not oh. the
1: man you're no you're you're the bad guy uh
0: here yeah uh, so core if you're listening but... thank you for being my nathan <laughs> 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 oh that's awesome well speaking of the old testament we're going to be talking about uh numbers 22 today uh which it's pretty on point with Dolphins and animal and human beings hanging out together. I think that's that was pretty good, pretty good t- un, yeah. unintentional tie-in. T- so, yeah, we'll be in numbers twenty two, Psalm twenty seven. Uh, we're going to jump ahead in Second Corinthians to chapter eleven, the second half of that chapter, and then our but what about passage is the watchful servants in Luke twelve. But to begin, we're going to be talking about numbers twenty two, and and we're going to look specifically at the second half of this chapter, and. Uh, a little background I think is helpful here. In Numbers, uh, you have the people of God, the Israelites, walking ahead to the promised land that God had promised to bring them to. Uh, already we've seen uh, God deliver them from the Egyptians. We've seen God give them the law, and now they're in the wilderness heading towards the promised land. So I think that's just helpful, just big picture, where are we at, what's going on. Uh, numbers 22 is when that, uh, like zooming in on the Israelites and where they've been and where they're going kind of slows down. And now we're going to turn and look at another enemy that's trying to stop them from doing that. And that is Balak or Balak. Whenever you get an Old Testament name, I think we just say it confidently and move along and people will believe you. Uh, But King Balak, uh, or you can just say it differently every time. King Balik, uh, he he, he hires a false prophet to come in and and preach against Israel. and, and, And that prophet's name is Balaam. Don't get your bays, uh, you know. Cr- don't cross your bays. There are two two bays here, Balak and Balaam, and uh, Balaam is. He first says no, he's not going to go and and preach against God's people because God tells him not to. And then God intervenes and is like, okay, you can, but do everything I say. And then you get this really strange story in the middle of the Old Testament where an angel appears to a the donkey that Balaam is riding. And the angel is holding a sword and he's holding it out to kill Balaam. But the donkey sees it and is trying to save Balaam's life by walking a different direction. But again, Balaam can't see this angel that wants to kill him. And so he's harming the donkey and trying to make, you know, as as you do as a rider, you're trying to make this animal obey you and go the direction you want to. Uh, three times he beats this donkey to try to get it back on track. Until God finally opens Balaam's eyes and sees that he's in great danger because this angel is going to kill him. And then he also does an even stranger thing, which is to open the mouth of the donkey and have the donkey speak to Balaam. So all sorts of level of strange, uh, but let's see what good news we can draw out of it. Other than the fact that God speaks through talking, talking donkeys uh, like like us. So with that, maybe we can maybe we can chat like like donkeys. What do, what do you guys see in this passage?
2: Um <laughs> talking donkeys that is us. Um yeah, I this passage kind of cracks me up. Um <laughs> I feel like there's like I've been on such a journey the last couple of years, um especially since attending Hiawatha, um and just being under very gospel-centric preaching, um, just kind of being able to move into these weird passages in Scripture and see Christ there just as much as you would see Him in the Gospels and in the New Testament um, or like, you know, in David or things that we kind of hear often. but to be able to look at this passage about a talking donkey of all things and to see Christ um, I feel like that's definitely something that I've been growing into. Um, and yeah, I think we see a lot of animal typology throughout the Bible. Um, you know, you have God as the lion of Judah, Jesus as the lamb of God. Um, but here I think we have Jesus as a talking donkey. Um in that you have Balaam riding him towards certain doom. He doesn't know it, but he's riding towards this angelic figure wielding um a uh, sword, um, Allah, you know, Garden of Eden. <laughs> hmm. Um and the donkey is trying to save him by turning aside. And in doing so, he is being harmed instead of Balaam. Um, and like you were saying, Davis, this happens three times. And I feel like every time is kind of a little bit more drastic on the part of the donkey. First, he's just turning aside. Then he's pushing against the wall. And then he's finally just laying down. Um, and each time he kind of gets beat a little bit more. Um and finally, you know, like you said, Balaam's eyes are open and he sees what's going on. Um, but even before he sees that, I love how God opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey starts talking and then Balaam just takes it in stride. Like he's not shocked. He's not shocked. He's like, like, oh, yeah, of course, we're having this conversation. Because, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. the don- the donkey's asking him, like, what did I do? Why are you beating me? Um And Balaam just kind of answers right back. And he says, because you've made a fool of me. Um, And I wish I had a sword in my hand for then I would kill you. Um, And I feel like even in that Balaam's taking on a very like Pharisee typology where all throughout Jesus's ministry, the Pharisees were just irate with him because he kept kind of turning their questions back onto them, kind of flipping their entire ideology upside down on them, which was just mind-blowingly frustrating for them, which ultimately led to Jesus's death on the cross by their hands. Um, And so here you have Balaam just threatening him with a sword he doesn't have. um, When in fact we see then that the angel has the sword that was meant for him. Um, But again, instead of him getting that judgment beating, (laughs) um, it was turned onto the donkey. Um, And I think, I think it's just a pretty amazing to be able to kind of open up the word and see a talking donkey and be like, yeah, that's Jesus. That tracks. Um, (laughs) Like the Holy spirit's a pretty, pretty cool guy um, in that. (laughs) What did you guys see in this one?
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. You mentioned Eden kind of passingly there, um, Laura, but I think in light of all that you're saying, this is kind of a, a, an interesting play on this guy, trying almost to get back into Eden, you know, uh, himself, uh, and clearly not knowing the right way to do that, probably a bit too brazen, a bit too trusting in the self and who he is and the path that he thinks is right to take, you know, which is, I think, kind of a nod to to self-trust and and different things like that. Um, but, you know, with the donkey in mind and the fact that he's a struck donkey, a harmed uh, Christ figure in that regard, um, the way back to Eden comes kind of by way of surprise. It comes by the way of a donkey or a substitute, you know, one that was struck and harmed, not us. Um, I think that's that's the way in. And it, and it goes around. It goes off the road. It goes um, by the way of grace, which um, isn't the way that we always think. And so um, also, I think kind of tying a thread uh, into the New Testament, I think you see uh, at the triumphal entry when Jesus rides a donkey as well, who is called in places like Mark 11 and Matthew 21, a beast of burden. Um, I think that, that that donkey there, even though he's carrying Christ in the moment, becomes a picture of what Jesus is about to do. Um, and that is be tied up himself like the donkey was, uh, uh, be buried in a tomb that was never used, just like the donkey was never before sat on, uh, and, and to bear our burdens, to carry our sin. In this case, the donkey is carrying Jesus who would become sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God, as Second Corinthians 5 talks about. Um, and also trampling coats, trampling things that we used to wear, trampling our former clothing of self-righteousness and sin. All those things, I think, kind of come together to paint a beautiful, kind of secondary donkeys are pictures of Christ, you know, in both covenants, both testaments, um, as well. It kind of serves that kind of maybe end game or end, uh, secondary, but kind of a final version of that in, in the, the new Testament, uh, as well.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it's really helpful as we talk, uh, of, you know, donkeys as representative of Jesus, um, the, the magic is in seeing how, like that you guys have shown, right. That like he's this one who suffers so that, the rider might be delivered from certain death, even death he can't see. And the more you just draw that out, as you guys are even describing these things, I'm like, wow, he really is incredible. And and I don't have eyes to see that always. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's another part that really resonates with me in this passage is, is verse 31, just straight up saying, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. Just this picture of <clears throat> being unable to see reality is, I think, one that comes up again and again in the scriptures uh, and one that has purchase, I think, in our like daily lives <laughs> that we don't have the ability to see, especially what's ultimately threatening to us, which is what this angel is. It's, th- it's threatening Balaam's life. The donkey sees that and is trying to save his rider's life. Um, or it, it very practically, I mean, just coarse comment to me that I was, you know, jokingly sharing in the beginning of like, yeah. I really, in the midst of like hard things in my life, I cannot see reality, and mm-hmm. I need God's help to to open my eyes so that I might see what actually is harming me, what actually is threatening me, what does God say is the ultimate threat to my life? Um, And I had a, mm-hmm. a friend in church this week just uh, use some words that he heard over a year and a half ago of just your greatest threat has been taken away in Jesus the you know the ultimate donkey in the story um and so what's the problem today you know like if if we hear that if our eyes are open to it uh that changes the way that we're navigating this the struggles and the the problems that stand before us um and also that this is the same language that is brought up at one of the pinnacle moments in the bible after Jesus comes back from the dead it's in Luke 24 When Jesus walks up to two strangers who are talking about the events of the weekend with his own crucifixion and they don't recognize him. And then Jesus gives them this Bible lesson of all the places he shows up. Maybe he turned to Numbers 22 and was like, actually, this is kind of like me suffering to to protect Mm -hmm. you from the ultimate threat that Mm -hmm. exists over your head. Uh, And then at the end of the passage, it says that Jesus opened up their eyes and they saw him like, this is the thing that God wants to reveal that there no longer is an angel of death with a sword over you. That flaming sword that protected the garden went into the side of Jesus at his death. And now when he opens our eyes, we see love. We see him. We see him walking up towards us as we can't understand our confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. And he says, this means me. And it's, it's the best news we've ever heard, uh, which actually is a pretty good tie-in to Psalm 27. Um, and I'm just going to read verse 4 because this is, a, this is a verse that, especially over the years, just begins to take on more meaning. It says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. We can read more uh, in Psalm twenty-seven if we want to, but let's just start uh, with verse four.
1: Yeah, it's such a good verse. The Psalms amazing. Uh, that that verse to me, it, it, we used to sing a song at our church uh, that had that lyric in it. Um, I think it's been since retired, not for bad reasons, but uh, it's. But man, such a great, such a great idea. It's hard for me not to just sit and at the base of that mountain of the phrase one thing and just gaze at it. Like it is so, so simple. And it's easy to, if you're um, maybe a student of scripture or, you know, consider yourself a very Bible centered person, like to think, but isn't there so much more in the Bible and, you know, so much more to do's and so much more things to think about maybe, and uh, more facets of the diamond. And, you know, and it depends on what someone means by that, but it, you know, the answer to that could be, well, yes, but they're not all on the same level, it seems. It seems like there's a priority. There's a, a preferencing. There's uh, there's peaks and valleys. There's bigger and smaller, or to quote Hebrews, there's um, greater and lesser covenants, even, you know, I think of first Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I, what I communicated to you in the beginning was of utmost importance, which implies there's lesser things uh, that he said too that were still good and true and beautiful, but they weren't of utmost importance. Uh, So the one thing here that David seeks is just to be with God and to gaze on Jesus, not on himself, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him, and, and to be close to him. It, it's uh, reminded me of uh, Luke 10, I believe it is, where uh, the, the Mary and Martha passage where um, Martha is is struggling, she's striving, she wants to clean the house and, and be a servant, which isn't all bad. Um, but Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and, and Martha comes in and a little bit distraught and Jesus's words to her are, Martha, like you're you're struggling and, and striving and worried about so many things, but only a few things are necessary. And then he actually corrects himself. I think the one time you see Jesus kind of pivot maybe and correct himself a bit. He says, actually, you know what? Only one thing is necessary. And uh, it's just this moment where he kind of leaves it hanging, but it's pretty clear that he's talking about himself. He's talking about the fulfillment of Psalm 27, 4, which is in the flesh, right in front of her, that Jesus is now here as the temple of the Lord. Uh, this isn't like a, a physical structure now, like in David's day, Jesus is the temple. He's the he's the manifest presence of God himself in a human being who's come to be her all in all and to die on a cross for her sins and to be that one most important thing that, that kind of triumphs and rises above uh, all other things, even if they're good, even if they're biblical, you could say. Uh, uh, to go back to that whole idea of of preferencing, uh, so th- that to me sticks out as this kind of Luke ten facing uh, gospel forward, you know, gospel gospel centered idea uh, embedded back here in the the middle of the psalter.
0: Yeah, I was really struck by how um, I was reading Derek Kidner's commentary. Uh, this this uh, episode is also sponsored by not only the Minnesota Zoo but by Derek <laughs> Kidner himself. Uh, he's got great Psalm commentaries, um, and he just—they just they all, that- all gave us like twenty-five cents. So at this
1: point, at this point, we have so many sponsors that can throw in a quarter, and it starts to add up uh, to a decent amount, actually. But
0: yes, if you want to join that list, you can email our agent. Um, their contact information is not hard to find. Uh, but Derek Kidner says <laughs> that preoccupation with God is the essence of not only worship, though, of course it is, right? Just you're preoccupied with God, you're worshiping him, but it's also the essence of discipleship based on this passage. That's what he says. And, and that that really, um, yeah, it's, it struck a chord with me because, my I mean, I think partly because my title uh, as a pastor is a pastor of discipleship. And sometimes there are feelings that I have associated with that of like, should I have like a perfect 10-step plan? You know, we just live in such a time where everything has this program and this plan that's very definable and measurable. And um, part of even me coming into ministry was leaving some of that uh, measure-y world behind. Um, But this is one of those passages and and Derek's comment on it that really does help me of just navigating like, what, what am I actually after with regards to discipleship? And I do think there's a one thing type mentality of discipleship that isn't just like an easy pat answer, but it's foolish enough to believe that the gospel has something to say to every situation. And it isn't this just that Jesus is this pat answer, but like we just talked about with the donkey, that there's this, there's this diamond of of beauty to to mine in every passage of scripture that looks like asking how how is Jesus the answer in the midst of life's challenges and and even just speaking practically from a ministry standpoint, uh, people just are not believing the gospel. They're not believing the one thing that God wants to say. How do I know that uh because I don't believe the gospel most of the time right like yeah. by example with the gutters is like there is a there was a total uh picture of reality that I was buying into in the midst of that anxiety that says, you're doing a bad job uh, at navigating financial decisions and you need to be the one that is making the maximizing, the maximizing decisions that are best for your family and you and not taking into account all sorts of other things that that God would say about who am I and what is this house? Who is it for? Who is this person I'm working with? Why did I get a new roof, right? The gospel has a thousand things to say uh, into every one of these situations. Let's just take the example of loneliness, a growing problem uh, in the year 2023. Um, if, If someone right now is struggling with loneliness, do you think that their first instinct is to go to the one thing, the one message, the gospel that says, do you know that Jesus left heaven and earth behind to come to you so that you would spend eternity with him? And that begins right now, right? Like this, this one thing has something to say in the midst of Mm. uh, every, every situation. And and so just casting a wider net for discipleship, I think is really helpful in light of this gospel. And and I think it also helps us to visit the real uh, dark places of life. Because uh, if if one thing is true of the gospel, it's that uh, we are maybe equipped with the only tool that allows us to see how broken and messy and dark life actually is. Be, why? Because we follow uh, one who labeled himself the man of sorrows uh, and also was called a suffering servant, and his life on earth looked like going to... Uh, the darkest, sickest, most broken places um, as a physical demonstration that this is what he's taking on. And so where is he to be found? Where is he hanging out? Where is the temple? Where do we find him to gaze at the beauty? It's like, well, actually, I think he's hanging out in the, the most difficult, hard, broken places of our life right now. I think that's where he's most easily found. Of course, he's in the good gifts of life. But the gospel is the thing that says that means he's actually in the like his his mo is to go to those places that we don't want to visit those places we're afraid of and and as, as just as a tool for discipleship it's like wow that that has a thousand things to say to me right now in the midst of of reality so how about you Laura
2: yeah I mean David I love that I mean even just for me personally in my life right now that's such a good word um but yeah I think this psalm I feel like we forget how revolutionary this simplicity is in the gospel. Um, This psalm, I mean, starting with verse four, but going through the end, it keeps pressing into this idea of nearness to God. Um, We have, you know, David talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord, inquiring in his temple hiding you know he's asking god to hide me in his shelter um and david's going to make offerings in his tent um and i feel like for us that's that tracks right like yeah yeah so jesus is my bff of course like that's totally fine <laughs> um and even you know when he's talking about like gazing upon the face of the lord and and seeking the lord's face and asking god not to hide his face you know we can just very easily like yep yeah, that's of course exactly what I feel because God is safe. Um, but to remember that this is written and being sung in Old Testament era pre-cross where their idea of nearness to god is the temple and the tabernacle where really the closer you got to god the more chance you had to die um like god was not a safe thing to be near to um and especially like you have the whole episode where the people are telling Moses to cover his face because he's just reflecting the glory of God. And they just, you know, and at the bottom of my, Mount Sinai, they're telling God to stop talking. Like they nearness was not a great thing in old Testament time. So I think we just need to remember that this being written in that is such a huge, not red flag, white flag, right? Like something is coming, that is going to turn everything that we know as the people of God upside down um, where nearness to God is something that we just push into and seek after and cry out for um, as opposed to just being so scared of being able to look at him because he's going to judge us. But all of that judgment was thrown upon the shoulders of Jesus and I feel like this nearness well, it's not, I don't feel like, I know this nearness is directly because um, Jesus took that fear and that judgment and everything that was causing that fear and judgment onto himself. And so, you know, the beginning of the Psalm is talking about evildoers assailing against him and you know, the army encamping against him. And, you know, he took that. So then we can step into verse four and beyond and say, yes, like give me the nearness because this is not life killing anymore. It's life giving. Like I'm not at the base of Mount Sinai anymore. I'm in the Holy of Holies because the veil has been torn down and, and this is life now. Um, I just I I feel like just remembering the context this is written just gives it so much power um, because of just how upside down it would have been. um, And just reminding us just how crazy the gospel is and the cross is and the idea that God would come down to us um, despite our efforts to make ourselves unworthy of that. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I love how forward facing that is, you know, it's just so good in so many ways. I I think as we um, maybe now uh, pivot and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll, we'll see Paul actually, I think in a very unique kind of Pauline way, in his own way, he he revisits some of this stuff. He, he comes back to that one thing mentality, but kind of by way of apostleship, and, and, and about in in a way of uh, discipleship as well. Like Davis, you were talking about, uh, but looking at his own life. And at the end of this book, uh, th- there are some sections of this letter that um, are the epitome of Paul's snarkiness, I think you could say, and, and sarcasm. Uh, and I think he get, he has some zingers in Galatians, but uh, I think this is a unique section where. At the end of the letter, he says, uh, I'm starting to talk like a fool. Uh, He uses the words, um, I'm a madman here. Uh, He's starting to talk about himself in the same way that his opponents do. And his opponents in this letter are these so-called super apostles, uh, these people that are flexing, teaching a very works-based gospel, kind of a Jesus plus something else theology. A couple of verses I'll just read from. This is our full passage of 2 Corinthians 11, 16 to 33. But in verse 23, in talking about his opponents, he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk about this. I am more I've worked much harder, been imprisoned prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, exposed to death again and again and again. Five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. I spent a night and a day in the open sea, constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, bandits, fellow Jews, Gentiles, in the city, in the country, at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored, toiled, gone without sleep and besides everything else i face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches who is weak and i do not feel weak who is led into sin and i do not inwardly burn um And so he goes on then to talk about his own life and how even at one point, I think he's quoting from Acts 9, but that might be the wrong reference, but he talked about how he was in Damascus and he was uh, lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through uh, these individuals' hands who wanted to uh, either arrest him or kill him or persecute him in some way. So a very interesting collection of, of teachings here and kind of a reflection on his life, very autobiographical, but he's making kind of a sarcastic point by saying that if his opponents are starting to talk about themselves in a works-based way, then he's like, why don't I do that too? I'll start to talk on their terms. If they're bringing the law, I'll kind of bring it back uh, to, make, uh, to make a point. Even though my gospel, my message is the antithesis of our works, it's about Jesus's works, I'll meet these infiltrating teachers uh, kind of on the same in this, in the ring or on the same level. And pardon me for a minute while I start to sound like them to make this point. Um, And so his, His point here is that I'm a madman and a fool to talk this way, but my hand is forced. And so if you want to talk about works, let's go. I have far greater labors to my name, and yet I don't rely on them. I have far greater sufferings than they, and yet I don't boast in them. Uh, If anyone had reason to count on their works, it's me. This is a great Philippians 3 idea too. Uh, If anyone has any reason to boast or check a list or count, it's me, but I don't. So doesn't that tell you something? Um, the, these super apostles uh, are are teaching you to rely on yourself and the flesh and to add to God's grace uh, alone. And so I, I think what's really interesting then with the, the basket thing at the end is he's saying that kind of epitomizes my story. And I think what is the gospel is that we are saved by the work of someone else's hands. We are lowered out the window of danger by the hands of a savior. Uh, And kind of like a baby, it's a very self-effacing, a very humbling image to say, you know, as your pastor, as this guy who wrote half the New Testament, at one point, I was lowered out a window because I couldn't fight on my own, right? And yet, Paul's saying these super apostles are like ones who are climbing the exterior of the building like Spider-Man with their teaching. And here I am going out the side window like, like, like a baby in a basket. His question then I think is, which Christianity do you want? Do you want the Spider-Man ascension type, uh, the flexing type, the workspace type, or do you want the type that I embodied by going out the window in a basket? You can't have both. And only one is true. There's only one thing to go back to Martha, only one thing to go back to Psalm 27. uh, And that is the the work of Christ who saves us in spite of ourselves, uh, not because of ourselves.
2: Yeah, this, this passage Paul just kind of kills me I feel like it's really starts in chapter 10 like this like leaning into sarcasm and snark and just kind of like a shoulder throttling I feel like this is as a parent you know when your kids keep doing things that like you've repeatedly told them like that's not a good idea um and then they do it one more time and then you just give them this look like I feel like as a parent you know what look I'm talking about like okay, come on. Like, I feel like this is like Paul verbalizing that look. (laughs) Okay. Like, let's just circle back to the conversation that we keep having. Um, But this whole passage just kind of gives me very like Isaiah vibes where God is just like, what is going on? Like you continually go astray and he's just so fed up with the people of Israel um who are just constantly turning away from him constantly chasing after false gods um but on the same breath he has this super stubborn love for this wayward people and he is constantly pulling that pulling them back in grafting them back in um just despite how many times they turn away and i feel like paul's very much kind of giving that father god vibe here with his wayward children um just kind of always coming back with the parent look, but just with open arms as well. Like I give my my kids that look, but they know that I'll hug them, you know, too, I guess. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, I think, I think with passages like these two, you just have to really dig into what these specific words are talking about. Like what is foolishness in this and what is wisdom? Um, in verse, uh, what is it? Verse... 19 and 20, he's talking about like, oh, you guys are so wise, but then he goes straight into like, yeah, you're so wise that you're being enslaved, you're being devoured. Um, And that is where wisdom gets you. And just like you were talking about, Chris, like his, Paul's foolishness is actually the one that's grace carrying, right? Like it is, it is not chasing after these guys who look awesome. Um, but resting in the one who actually, according to the biblical text, did not look that great. Um, (laughs) You know, it talks in Isaiah 53 about the coming Messiah and how he was not really anything to look at, um, except that's where we get drawn, right? That's where we run to. Um, And I love that even in, in here, Paul, in chapter 10, He's talking about what they're saying and how they're saying that Paul's letters are really weighty and awesome, um, but actually your bodily presence is very weak um, and your speech kind (laughs) of sucks. And I love that. Just like, you know, we have this idea of Paul in our head just being this like super crazy magnanimous guy. Um, when really that wasn't the case. Um, His words were life-changing, but he was just an ordinary guy. And I feel like that's what we have in Christ, is this ordinary-looking guy who is the living word, who is literally life-changing. And that is what Paul is raising up in the form of foolishness, is chasing after this kind of ordinary, crazy love, um, as opposed to chasing after these awesome, maybe looking guys who have really great words, but are handing out lifeless uh, trinkets to people. Does that make sense?
0: For sure does. And and that that principle here that is just on repeat um, in Paul's argument is one that is surprising. It is the way up is down, right? Not the way up is up. The things that we ordinarily go to, the things that we ordinarily measure that we think are impressive, our W-2s, uh, our means of transportation, the homes we live in, the things we advertise, the things we take selfies around, the trips we go on, uh, whatever they might be, the places where we're tempted to go, isn't this impressive? Isn't something I've done here make you turn your head and go, wow, that person is so great. Uh, Paul goes, that's that's actually maybe more dangerous spiritually than you realize. And that the way to connect with God, the way to commune with God is not up, but down. And I just find it so ironic that the the thing that he etched into history that he would be remembered by for this church is what you talked about, Chris, with this lowering in a basket from a window in the wall and slipping through the hands of a guy who's trying to kill him. Like this is the epitome of a picture of somebody who is not a warrior in the ways we think about it, right? Like this guy's not going toe to toe with a UFC fighter. He's actually running, and he's 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 embodying this picture of becoming very small, like an infant, like you said, Chris. And I I think mm-hmm. there's there's practical payoff in thinking about this in your life. Like, uh, well, actually, it, it reminds me of uh, you know where I'm going. No, you don't. I'm I'm going to rap battles. I you you guys, you guys seem like big rap battle fans, so I thought I would take us there. Eminem uh, fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. In the movie Eight Mile, Marshall Mathers, aka Slim Shady, aka Eminem. Um, the end scene, you've had 20 years to watch this movie, so I do not feel bad about <laughs> spoiling it. But the last rap battle, he's going up against kind of the kingpin guy who he, I think he choked in front of last time, meaning he he was unable to deliver a rap when he was supposed to, and he was filled with shame as a result. Uh, but rap battles are actually a place where a lot of the way up is up is on display, right? Like, I'm so impressive I'm more impressive than you. That's a rap right there. That's that's actually that kind a of a really mullet. good rap. Thank you. I've actually, I've, it took me years to write that one. Um, short and sweet. It's, it's what we're about here at Red Tree Pod, uh, especially with regards to wraps, which is maybe our third sponsor today. Just wraps in general. Uh, it's not even a company. It's just wraps. Uh, anyway, he's in this, in the final scene, he's going against the, the, the guy that... Um, Everybody can't beat. And Eminem goes first and he does something that no one's ever done in a rap battle up to this point. And instead of dissing or coming after the guy he's in a rap battle with and saying, this is how much better I am than you. He goes against himself and he lists all the things that he thinks this guy's about to say against him. That's actually his line. I know everything this guy's about to say against me. And then he just lists them, all of his weaknesses in rap form And then when he's done, he hands the mic to the guy who's supposed to go next. And the guy has nothing to say. This is an awesome picture, I think, of how to win a rap battle with your sin. I guess I I think that would be the application. (laughs) Uh, But no, in the midst of, of life's real struggles, becoming aware and acquainted with your weaknesses and not hiding from them, but looking at them face to face and going, this is what's true of my current situation of reality. And God's going to help me in that. God's going to meet me in this. This happens so that I might not rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead, to quote another part of 2 Corinthians. Um, I think that's a good place. We, we've we, yeah, we've talked a lot about 2 Corinthians 11. Let's turn to our, but what about passage today? Uh, and this is the watchful servants found in Luke 12, specifically verses 35 to 40, or you could take it down to 46. Uh, but let me just read it real quick because it's short it says, be, this is Jesus speaking, be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the middle of the night to or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then Peter's gonna go on and go, "Lord, are you are you telling this parable for us or for for other people? You know, like it was just an <laughs> instant parable. You know, to say about that." But uh, the reason uh, we want to look at this as a "but what about" passage is again uh, the ways that uh, sometimes when we're reading the Bible and we make it about us, um, it. it often brings us to a wrong place of understanding what is God actually trying to say. And this is one of those passages that I think people are are quick to turn to of like, you no, know, see, God is really expecting us to be like on guard, ready to do something. Um, they, and, and you're not wrong. God God is very involved in our day-to-day lives. Uh, but how and what is he expecting? Um Because I I remember being a Bible study on this passage with a group and, you know, everyone's in a different place in a Bible study. And so wacky stuff is going to get said all the time. And I say wacky stuff and donkeys talk, right? Like we said at the beginning (laughs) of this podcast. So there's always freedom to speak uh, incorrectly of scripture. We're all doing our best. Um, But I think that the time I was in a Bible study on this one where we just naturally head to is why it's worth treating this passage as a, but what about, right? Because I think grace has much to say, because where we went to that Bible study is people right away went, okay, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about his second coming. He's coming back and and he wants us to be watching and be ready. And so inevitably people went right away to like, so don't live like the world. And then it just kind of felt like, okay, we've, we've solved this passage. We have the right answer. Be ready. Jesus is coming back. Don't live like the world. But the moment you double click on that is the moment where that just falls in on itself. Because what does that actually mean? And what, what does it mean to not live like that? Are we talking about like, don't watch TV or like a certain amount of TV? Because like, I actually really like TV. I quoted a movie just now <laughs> as I was describing an analogy of, of that last passage. Yeah. Uh, but what if uh, this passage isn't first about us, right? Like what if even the subtitle that we're giving watchful servants is not even the point of the parable? Because as we like to do at Red Tree uh, is, is to say, you know, what if this first is about Jesus? Like that is an interpretive tool. And one way to find that is to just go, well, especially with a parable, is there anything surprising? Is there anything that kind of catches you off guard with this passage? And uh, because like we looked at in 2 Corinthians 11, a lot of what Jesus is doing is, is challenging our intuitions. Because we have such works-based intuitions that say, this is about me and what God's expecting of me. Uh, But here in this passage, one of the things that's most surprising is that the master who these servants are waiting on is actually a master servant. The servants wait on him to come. And the moment he gets there, he says, where's my apron? Grab a seat at the main table. We're having filet mignon tonight and I'm serving you, right? Like there's just this, what is going on here? What is God trying to say? Which I think allows us to then relocate the timing and go, maybe before this has something to say about the second coming, I'm fine if it has something to say about that. I don't think that's the first application of this passage. What if this has something more to say about when Jesus is going to die and how much that's going to look like God saying, take a seat at the table. I'm coming to serve you in a way that no master has ever served a servant because masters don't serve servants. It's often the other way around. But right, the story of God is I'm coming to do what you can. I'm coming down that mountain to die in your place. Uh, be watching, be ready for me. And once you know, this is my heart, once you know, this is how I work in a world. If you're a servant of that household, how much more are you just ready to go? I'm watching, I'm waiting, I'm looking for him and everywhere, I'm looking for the one who breaks my intuitions and who says, actually strength is found in weakness. Strength actually looks like being lowered out of a window. I am operating precisely in those places of breakdown and fear and darkness that you don't wanna look at because that's that's where light goes. It crowds those places out. So I think that's a good starting place. What else do you guys wanna draw out of the watchful servant's passage?
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like this, that is a huge shock value of this one. Right. And I think it's something that we kind of skim over because you're right. Like we see something that's about us. Like we have to stay awake and we kind of like frog leap over then, but no, 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 like we're awake because this, this master is coming to serve us. But I feel like it's so easy to, to just skip right over that. Um, I think uh, one of the things that kind of struck me and, you know, you mentioned it too, it's kind of the same that we saw in the second Corinthians passage is just really making sure that we sit in the words that we're reading, um, you know, in the second Corinthians p- passage, we were trying to figure out like what wise is and what foolish is and it was kind of shocking because it was backwards to what we normally gravitate towards. And I think the same thing is happening here um, because we have this idea of being awake. And for me, you know, I tend to err on what's happening in my life right now. Like I am awake and I am busy and I'm constantly on the go and I'm constantly trying to do better and be better and tick all the boxes and do all the things and respond to all the emails and the voicemails and whatever and right now like that is awake for me and so i read this and i'm like okay i'm i got to be awake and waiting for the lord which means i'm going to be constantly on the go um but i think it's really interesting cuz even in that first verse in verse 35 um i'm in the esv and my Um, mine says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. But I have this little footnote next to action. And down below, it says that the Greek is actually let your loins stay girded. Um, And when I read that, I have, you know, that one hermeneutical brain cell bopping around in my brain somewhere. And it flagged me back into the Exodus, which is where we first saw that. Well, actually, I don't know. Is that where we first saw that? I feel like. I don't know if it came before them, but that's a big one. Um, and where they were told, you know, gird your loins um, while they were waiting in their houses um, for the angel of death to go over and, and kind of lay this judgment on Egypt. And God was telling them, like, be ready to go, gird your loins. Um, and when we see that, I feel like that just opens up what we're reading here, because in the Exodus, that gird your loins wasn't be ready to go fight for me, be ready to go do your part. Um, it was literally do nothing, but be ready to walk into freedom after I've done the work, after I've you know, done the judgment, done the saving, you be ready to just claim it, um, to just walk into it. And I think that's the same kind of be ready that we're getting here. I don't think it's accidental that we have this idea of girding our loins, kind of popping back up in the text. Um, And I think that really, I don't know, for me, that brings my shoulders down um, in this text from, okay, I've got to do it all. I've got to be it all um, to just like, he has done it all. He's doing it all. He's been it all. um, And I just have to be ready to just, walk into his freedom, his salvation, his love. Um, And then I think on the flip side, I think, you know, the idea of not being awake, of being asleep is, is just the idea of being asleep to God's glory and asleep to the gospel and asleep to his redemptive work in our lives. Um, And I think that actually happens when we are physically awake and busy, 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 go, go, go. And trying to do all of the things um, so again, it's just this weird flip-flop of terminology that we see in scripture that really makes us pause. And I think that's purposeful and intentional because like Davis was saying, like we are so quick to like key in on words and phrases and ideas, and then we miss the whole point sometimes, which I do often. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I love when when these little ideas gets swooped in from the old Testament into the new. Cause I feel like it just gives it so much depth and opens up so much doors to understanding.
1: Yeah. The, I think the last thing I'll add here uh, to that is, um, you, you know, when, whenever I read parables like this, that end with some kind of warning, like, or seemingly seemingly like a warning of you must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you don't expect like, you know, it's easy to read that and think, oh, crap, you know, versus uh, seeing the phrase, the Son of Man's coming in an hour when you don't expect and to hear good news in that. Because I think like our expectations are always off and they're too low. You know, the, the idea that Jesus is coming in an hour we don't expect, uh, I think, is uh, powerful. It could be seen as, um, you know, as a as a positive image of love. The fact that Jesus is coming our way at all. Uh, a long time ago, someone told me that uh, you never see in the Bible the idea that God is waiting for us, and so it's it's always that we are waiting for God. That that's a uh, even I think in Psalm 27 uh, you, you get that idea of waiting for the Lord. Uh, and so, it, as we looked at before, so I, I think in that in that idea, uh, wrapped up in that, we have directionality. You know, we talk a lot about that where. The, the idea that Jesus is coming down and he's coming to us at all is a shock. It's a surprise. It's um, and that he's not waiting for us to clean ourselves up and prepare. Uh, the 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 parable here does not say that he's going to come back after we do something, uh, or when we're in a perfect state of waiting, but just to be ready and to look for the one who's coming and bounding over the hills to us. To quote from songs too, uh, in in the Old Testament. So um, so watching and waiting for him. I think the implication, if there is, and that's not to sap all the warning out of. Of it. I think the implication is if we're not doing this, then we're probably focusing too much on ourselves or our work or our accolades. I think some of these parables that Jesus gives are kind of wrapped up with, a, uh, you know, but wait, I have something to do, or uh, there's an invitation to a banquet. And the response is, but I just got married, or I bought all these oxen, or I have to build this house and finish this project. It's, it's essentially a, a posture of, but wait, me, but, but wait, I, but wait, I've got to get something done and prepare myself better. And I think the the response Jesus gives a lot of times in his teachings and his parables are that that's the wrong posture. The right posture is uh, to trust in him alone and to see him coming to us uh, and to have that one thing, right? That going back to that Psalm 27 and Luke 10 idea, the one thing of Jesus coming to us just uh, to be ready in that, to be ready to see it uh, arriving over the hills and and coming at the most unexpected time, not in response to our works. That would be expected. That'd be like, you know, okay, it's coming to check the boxes and to come at the right exact moment after we've done all these things. But to say he's coming at a not an unexpected time is to say he's coming by grace. He's coming when he wants, because he loves us. Uh, and and not in, a, not in a posture of waiting for us, but hoping and knowing that his people are waiting for him to come.
0: When he shall come with oh, Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided by Dan Zeller and website support by Nolan Bauer. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, do consider dropping us a rating wherever you get your podcast to join us in giving away the always better news of God's grace. Thanks again for being with us.